Well, this morning we're just going to jump right in. So take your Bibles and open them with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. And believe it or not, we've been in the Gospel of Mark now for two years. We're making our way verse by verse through a large, relatively large book of the Bible. And Mark speeds through the life of the ministry of Christ. And he really, though, slows things down for the final week of Christ's life. And then slows things down even more for the final day of his life. And here we are on the final night of his life in the middle of Mark 14. Specifically for two weeks already, we've been studying this profound passage where Jesus takes some time to pray before he's arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Such a unique passage because we get this special insight into the person of Jesus, what he's like on the inside, what he feels on the inside. A lot of this comes from the content of his prayer, and we've been studying that for two weeks already. But now Mark 14, the the focus shifts to the disciples and to us. You know, it's fair to ask, why is this here? Why why is any of this here? But why is this Garden of Gethsemane account recorded, included in Scripture? And the ultimate answer is for us. Scripture was written for us. So what's the impact? What are we to learn and take away from what we've studied so far and will continue to do so this morning in the Garden of Gethsemane? Well, first and foremost, we learn about Jesus as we watch him endure trial after trial, culminating with the hour on the cross. We see how God made him into our perfect, sympathetic high priest. And we need that because we're not perfect. But as we look at Jesus in Gethsemane especially, we can rest assured he knows what we're going through. He knows how to overcome trial and tribulation. He knows how to enable us to overcome. He overcame first. Accordingly, this was also written and included that we might see Jesus as our perfect example. We're meant to learn from him how to handle our own trials and temptations. It's only a matter of time before we too are tested and tried and we need to learn from him the importance of watching and praying. Through the experience of Jesus in Gethsemane and through the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane, we're to do just that, to learn from him that the path of overcoming. And it's for the same reason that the failure of the disciples is recorded as well. We've spent so much time focusing on Christ and this amazing passage of him in in the garden praying, but the whole second half, which we get to this morning, it's all about the disciples and their failure. In the end, though, we we need to see that. We're we're not like Jesus. We're not. He is perfect in all ways. We're not. We fail. We stumble like the disciples fail and stumble. And here in this passage, that's on display. We're we're like them. But we are meant to see in the disciples a reflection of ourselves. The disciples failed to listen to Jesus, and they failed to follow Jesus, and so they fell. And the lesson is, so will we if we fail to listen to Jesus and fail to follow Jesus. This morning, we're going to switch our focus and put it on to the disciples to see how they failed, that we might learn to succeed when we face our trials and tribulations. How are we to overcome? We will find out this morning. Let's get back up to speed. We are reading this passage once again. In case you weren't here, join me in Mark 14 and start at verse 32. Mark 14, starting at verse 32. It says, They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough, the hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. 
Well, two weeks before this, we've covered really that first half of this Gethsemane account, placing all of our attention on Jesus, what he was going through, what he prayed. Now we're going to get to the second half, and the attention turns towards the disciples. Once again, the setup is the same. Jesus and the disciples, they just left that upper room where they observed that last Passover meal. And Jesus stopped by the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, something he had done often. This time he left eight of the disciples at the front entrance. Judas has already out of the picture. And he takes with him his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, deeper into the garden to pray. Peter, James, and John, they're going to lead the early church, so Jesus grooms them. He gives them special insight into his person and his works. So they beheld his power as they watched him raise a girl from the dead. They beheld his glory as they witnessed the transfiguration. And here they behold his humanity as they watch Jesus face real trial and temptation. Yet they will also see the path to overcoming. If they would just follow the lead of Jesus here, they would see how to do it. Only they don't. In this passage, in this instance, they don't follow his lead and they stumble. What did Jesus tell them? He takes Peter, James, and John, and what does he tell them? Verse 34. He said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. He sets him up. He goes a little bit of distance away. He falls to the ground. He just starts to pray. He needs to be alone, but he wants them to be with him, sort of keeping watch. So he tells them, just guys, keep watch. Keep watch. What does that really mean, to keep watch? Gregoreo is the word in the Greek we get the name Gregory from. From that, it means to be awake to be on the alert, to be watchful, vigilant. It's very clear from the context, Jesus, he's not telling them to keep watch in a physical sense. This is not Jesus setting up the three disciples to watch out for the Roman guards as they're on their way to arrest him at that very moment. Rather, he's using this word in a a spiritual sense. They are to keep watch over their souls. And for this, they need to be awake, not just physically, but spiritually. This is a call to spiritual alertness. Why would they need to be spiritually alert? Because an hour of testing was coming upon them as well. And if they weren't ready, they'd be caught off guard and they would stumble and fall. It's kind of like playing out in the ocean in the surf. It's fun and all, but you need to watch out. You need to be awake, be mindful, don't get too distracted. It would be a mistake to get too distracted, to turn your back on the waves. Because it's only a matter of time before another set rolls in. And if you're not watching, it could catch you off guard. Waves can knock you over, take you down, pull you under, pull you out to sea. Some waves can kill you. So, So watch out. Jesus himself was facing his hour of testing in the garden in preparation for his final hour on the cross. So he was watching. And how did he watch? By praying. And that's actually what he told the disciples to do. Over in Matthew 26, the parallel, we get a little added detail where as Jesus left the three disciples, he told them, remain here and keep watch with me. Keep watch with me. Jesus, he's just telling them to do what he was going to go do, which was fall down and pray for that strength to endure. In fact, over in Luke 22, Jesus told them that explicitly. Before he went to pray, he told the three, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So again, it's very clear. We're talking about a spiritual watchfulness against temptation. And it's clear that that watchfulness is tied to prayer. A tidal wave of temptation and testing was coming their way. For Jesus, big time, but also for the disciples. And he's telling them beforehand, look, watch out and pray that you can stand because it's coming. It's very close. So he tells them to do precisely what he was going to do. Pray to the Father for the strength and resolve to endure whatever trial might come. After telling them this, he goes off to pray for about an hour. We've already spent two sermons studying what he prayed. At some point, he finishes, he gets up, he walks back over to Peter, James, and John, and he expects to find them doing what? Watching and praying. Instead, he finds them, what? Sleeping, physically and spiritually. And so look at verse 37. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? 
Could you not keep watch for one hour? The disciples have failed Jesus here. He gave them clear orders. Remain here, keep watch, and pray. But they failed. And so Jesus reprimands Peter. And notice a few things here. First, why is he picking on Peter? Well, Peter's the leader of them all, so he's held to a higher accountability. Also, remember, it was Peter who made the boldest claims. If you're in Mark 14, just look back at verse 29. What did we just learn that Peter was saying? Just right before this, verse 29, Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away, yet I will not. In verse 31, Peter kept saying insistently, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. Peter thought he was the exception, that he was so much spiritually, you know, more strong or stronger than the rest, more devoted. But the nail that sticks out gets hammered down, and, and Peter, in his spiritual pride, stuck himself out, thinking he was so great, and Jesus directs his strike on him. And secondly, notice what Jesus calls him Simon. That's his old name, that's not his new apostolic name. Jesus renamed him into Peter the Rock. Because he was going to lead the church with his steadfast faith and confidence in Jesus as the divine Messiah. But Peter was not living up to his new name. He claimed to be ready to die for Jesus, but he couldn't even keep watch for an hour. Now from a human perspective, we understand, we get their fatigue. you got to remember that the context, they just finished that, the upper room, that, that final meal together, that Passover meal. So they just had a big meal. We get tired after a big meal. And during that Passover meal, they shared four cups of wine. So they're not drinking the whole thing, but they're sharing four cups of wine. And right now when they're praying, it's about midnight. So picture yourself, it's Thanksgiving. You just had a big big meal. You're up at midnight, and now you're going to stay awake to pray for an hour. It's like, yeah, right. Good luck. We know how, good luck, right, Rod? We know how that goes. So we understand their tiredness here. But on the other hand, the seriousness of the hour should have spurred them on. They should have discerned this is a time of serious testing. We can't sleep. Realizing the hour was at hand should have given them a, a jolt of spiritual adrenaline, if you will. You know, it may be hard to stay up until 4 a.m., for example. It's just a hard thing to do. But what if somehow you, you heard this report that some serial burglar is going to strike your house between midnight and 4 a.m.? Somehow you knew that, and it was for sure. Would you stay up? I bet you would. I bet that would give you a little jolt to stay up. The disciples should have understood the seriousness of the hour and kept watch by praying like Jesus did. And so Jesus tells them again, verse 38, he says, keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Notice he tells them the same thing. There's nothing new here. He tells them the same thing. It's not time for innovation. When God's prescription for spiritual success fails, the problem is not with God. It's not with the prescription. You don't need a new doctor. You don't need new medicine. You don't need a new prescription. The problem is with the patient who failed to follow the instructions. Christ's words come with an implicit promise. If you watch and pray, you will not come into temptation. It's very reminiscent of how he taught them to pray early on. Remember Matthew 6, 13, he taught them, lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil or the evil one. Were the disciples being tested that evening as well and tempted? Yeah. In fact, we learn in Luke this, this amazing thing that just hours before this, just while they're in that upper room, Peter, he's boasting, I will never deny you, I'll follow you. And Jesus tells Peter that Satan has put his bullseye right on you. And so we read in Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus says to him, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. A whole lot can be said about that verse, but at the very least, Peter should have known. He had a serious trial coming his way. I mean, Jesus told him. 
And even though God is sovereign, should not Peter have still sought the Lord for strength to withstand that trial coming his way, that test? I mean, of course. That's what Jesus told him to do. And how would he overcome that testing? By watching and praying. You need to be mentally and spiritually alert to the time at hand and rightly prepare by wielding the sword of the Spirit in prayer. And through this, God, through prayer, God doesn't promise to take away your every trial and tribulation, but he does promise to help you endure, and that's what he wants. And through prayer, you access that strength to endure. And we need that strength. Why? Because the flesh is weak. Such a pivotal passage. The flesh is weak. The flesh is a reference to our human nature. Our human nature is inherently weak. We're beset with physical weaknesses and limitations like the need for sleep, for example. But after the fall, our flesh is now doubly weak because we no longer have just a weak human nature. We have a weak, sinful human nature. We have the sinful flesh. After the fall, our flesh is now programmed with a bent toward evil desires. We have this bent toward sin within ourselves. Our own hearts are now corrupt. We're born with corrupt hearts. Our corrupt hearts produce corrupt desires, and those corrupt desires produce corrupt deeds. And even as Christians, we're not freed from that sinful flesh in this life. That's why we have to fight to keep watch, to pray, and to seek strength because our flesh is still weak. And that said, that's a fight we can't win on our own. And that's where the disciples really fell short. I'm positive they had the best of intentions. They didn't want to deny Jesus. They didn't want to all run away and flee, but they did. Why? Well, they did not possess enough strength on their own to pass that test. And they failed to pray to the Father for more strength. So when the time of testing came, their willpower ran out and they succumbed to the flesh. That's how it works. That happens so many times. That still happens today, all the time. Your willpower will only take you so far. Have you ever told God, God, you know, I promise I'll never do that again? And then you do. Why? You want to do the right thing. I believe you. I do too. But if you're not keeping watch and wrestling with God in prayer for the strength to endure, when your time of testing comes, you too will succumb to the weakness of your own flesh. It is amazing how something so weak can be so strong. Well, let's keep reading. See for ourselves what happens to those who fail to watch and pray. Jesus tells them again, he leaves to pray. Verse 39, again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. You would think the first time Jesus lovingly reprimanded them, it would jolt them awake, but it didn't last long. Their eyes were too heavy. We know that feeling. You're trying to stay up late, and it feels like tiny little weights have been attached to your eyelids. You just can't keep your eyes open. Nothing you can do. The flesh is weak. Physically, the flesh is weak. And they fell asleep again. And what could they say for themselves? Nothing. I mean, what are they going to say? They just fell asleep. The flesh is weak. They couldn't say anything. Just hours before, they all were boasting that they would follow Jesus unto death. Here, they can't even stay awake for an hour or less. Well, they're going to have one more chance. One more chance, but you already know what happens. Verse 41. And he came the third time. When it went, he went away to pray a third time. In verse 41, he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. For a third time, Jesus goes to pray. Much like he was tempted three times in the wilderness, it appears that three waves of temptation come upon him in the garden as well. But three times, Jesus prays, and as we studied before, he receives the Father's strength and peace, and he will endure his trial with this supernatural peace. But not so with the disciples. 
Their chance to prepare has come and gone. Jesus says, it is enough. The hour has come. Their time of testing, here it is. This is the time. But now they're woefully unprepared. Surely Jesus could already hear the clanging of the Roman soldiers as they were descending on his position that very moment. The next passage, he's arrested. That's next week. But the time of preparation, it's over. The hour is at hand. The hour for which he came, it's starting. And, and relatedly, that sa- a similar hour is coming upon the disciples. They too are going to be tested. As Jesus was threatened with death, so were they. They would be tempted to deny him as their master. And, and as that angry mob comes and surrounds them, that tidal wave rolls in of, of tempting and testing. And their backs are turned. They're not ready for this. What are they going to do? Maybe if they had kept watch and if they had prayed with Jesus, they would have the strength to stand and to follow through on their goodwill, their good intentions. But they didn't. And the strength of their own flesh quickly runs out and they succumb. And as is no surprise to you, verse 50 says, they all left him and fled. All of them left him. In that moment, their fleshly desire for self-preservation kicked in. And being unprepared, they counted Jesus as not worth dying for. And their spirit, they still believed in him. They still loved him, but the flesh was weak. And since they did not keep watch and pray, they had no strength of God to rely on. Just their own strength, they ran out. They succumbed. They ran away. That's how it still works all the time. I love how commentator David Garland wraps this up in talking about the disciples. He says, quote, The disciples slept instead of praying. And when they finally rise, they go off in every direction but the one that Jesus leads, trying to save their own lives. End quote. Disciples will all run away. And we'll see more about that next time. But like I told you last week, I wanted to save plenty of time this morning now, to really flesh out the, the implications and the application of what we've been studying this morning and really the past two weeks as well from this Gethsemane account. This whole passage, I think, is second only to Christ's actual time on the cross when it comes to its importance and its impact. This passage teaches us so much about Jesus, and that's been our focus for the past two weeks, but it also teaches us so much about ourselves. The disciples, that's our mirror. And from them we learn how to handle trials and temptations. And most most often, it's the negative example of the disciples that teaches us so much. Like, don't do that. We learn from their failures. And do you realize the disciples failed Jesus just about every turn in his final hour? It should have been the disciples who anointed Jesus for burial. Instead, it was Mary. It should have been the disciples who volunteered to carry his cross. Instead, it was a random bystander named Simon. It should have been the disciples who confessed Jesus as the Son of God while he was hanging on the cross. Instead, it was a Roman centurion. It should have been the disciples who took his body down, washed it, placed it on a proper grave. Instead, it was a man named Joseph. And it should have been the disciples who rose early on Sunday morning to wash and anoint his body. But instead, it was a group of women. The disciples are models for total failures. They're weak. Their faith, it's real, but it's weak. Their sins are many. But then again, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. That's why Jesus came. That's why they needed Jesus. That's why we need Jesus, because we're no better. We've failed in much easier circumstances. Apart from Christ's intervention, there are none who seek God. There are none who are righteous, Romans 3 tells us. We're all lost, blind, bumbling sheep, headed off that cliff. But that's why Jesus came, to seek and to save that which was lost. That's why Jesus came. He died to save his lost sheep like the disciples, and to transform them. And that's why he brings them along. He wants them to learn special lessons from their failures 
so that afterward they would be strengthened and able to strengthen others from what they learned. And you know what? That's what the New Testament is. It's them passing on what they've learned. They're strengthening. So what I really want us to ask now is, especially from the disciples, how can we be strengthened by seeing their failure and what they learned from it? That's what I want to turn our attention to now. I want to put this in very practical terms for you. It's a real lesson learned from the disciples. So let, let me give you this. Just in reflecting on the disciples, five very practical steps to overcome the trials and temptations in your own life. Five steps to overcome the trials and the temptations in your own life. And it starts with this. Number one, know the weakness of your own flesh. You have to know the weakness of your own flesh. Now, I want to develop further this example from the disciples. So we're going to jump around. Join me in Romans 7. If you have your Bible, you can listen along or you can turn to Romans chapter 7. Overcoming starts by owning. You've got to take a good look in the mirror or just look at the disciples and realize that that's you and me. We're, we're no better. We too have and will fail and fall short. And if you want to be different though, step one is understanding your problem. Why, why do we fall short? The problem is us. It's our own hearts, our corrupt hearts, our sinful flesh. The flesh is weak. We are born with this bent towards sin and self. And that will quickly take us away from the way of God. And you have to understand also, even as a Christian, your sin nature is still there and it's still a problem. It doesn't go away after conversion. Now you may have good intentions. Now you have a bent toward righteousness and things of God. That, that's good. But that sinful flesh will rear its ugly head and take you down given the chance. Even as a disciple of Jesus Christ, you have to recognize the weakness of your own flesh. And here the Apostle Paul really helps us as he confesses the weakness of his own flesh. Even as a believer, Paul understood that still living inside of him as a believer was a desire for sin. And so he says in Romans 7:18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. Verse 21, he says, I find then the principle that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? See what's going on here? This is Paul's personal experience, and it is normative for all believers. At conversion, you place your faith in Jesus to save you, and he does. He forgives you. He cleanses you. He makes you new. You're given a new bent toward God. But until we die and are glorified in heaven, God leaves us on earth with corrupt bodies and a sin nature. We look forward to our glorification, our resurrection. But in the meantime, God leaves us in a state of warfare. And now it's our old selves versus our new selves. Our spirit versus our, our flesh. We have to recognize that and that, that's, that's what we're seeking to overcome. So as to please and glorify God. This is now a daily battle we're engaged in. Before, there was no battle. We lived in the flesh. We loved the flesh. We didn't wage war. We didn't care. But in Christ, the change is that now you're in a battle now. Now you do care because of your new birth, but we still have the flesh. How do we overcome? Well, step one, it starts with knowing the weakness of your own flesh. Then step two, seek God's spirit for strength. Seek God's spirit for strength. Only when you truly know how weak your flesh is on its own will you desperately seek the Lord for help. You finally realize, I, I cannot do this by myself. I need something out of myself. And you will seek the Lord for his strength. Ultimately, our help comes from Jesus. Our problem is sin. Jesus died to save us from the power and the penalty of sin. And so, if you're still in Romans, right after that, what do he say in chapter 8, verse 1? 
after confessing this inner struggle, there's an encouraging note. He says, therefore, Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We, we still have the sin nature, but if you're in Christ, we're, we're free. There's no condemnation. Truly in Christ by faith, the war is over. Jesus has overcome the power of sin and death. We find total forgiveness, reconciliation at the cross. Truly saved. And so in Jesus, we're free from the power of sin and the penalty of sin. But we're not yet free from the presence of sin. Not yet. Sin still resides within us. And that's why Paul said, who will set me free from the body of death? The answer to that question is still Jesus. Jesus one day will set us free from the very presence of sin. And that's called glorification. We'll we'll even be given resurrected bodies. Our flesh will no longer be weak in any way. But in the meantime, God leaves us to live with the presence of sin. Why would he do that? Uh, We wish he wouldn't. Just, Just kill us, take us to heaven. Much better. Why would he leave us? The answer is because he is greatly glorified when his children wage war against sin and overcome. That's something we can only do in this life. And he is greatly glorified when we do that. And that's our desire now. If you're born again, you desire that. But we're still weak. So how do we do it? We're still weak. The flesh is still weak. Well, practically, we overcome by the power of the Spirit which he gives to us. And that's the whole huge reveal in Romans chapter 8. If you're still there, we don't walk according to the flesh anymore, but according to the Spirit, verse 4. God's Spirit gives life to our spirit and enables us us to live for God. And so look at verse 12 of Romans chapter 8. He says, So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What does a spiritually dead person look like? They're living according to the flesh. They're still enslaved to the sin and and to self. What does a spiritually alive person look like? He says they are putting to death the deeds of the body. They've been born again in Christ. They've been given the spirit. And so now they hate sin and they live like it. Christians, we don't win every battle. We don't. The flesh is weak. We don't win every battle. But we fight. That should be true of you now. Do you fight? You better because that's the path to overcoming. And that's one of your strong bases for your assurance of salvation. And so he continues in verse 14 of Romans 8. He says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Here we actually see a connection with Gethsemane. Listen, how did Jesus overcome his trial and his temptation? Now granted, he did not have a sinful human flesh. He did not have a sin nature. But he had a real human flesh, a real human nature, like Adam before the fall, which was beset with natural limitations. And he was truly tempted. So how did Jesus overcome? Answer, by relying on the Spirit and calling out to God in prayer. As we studied last time, though he was fully divine and had a truly divine nature, Jesus didn't cheat. He lived fundamentally on earth as a man in a human nature, which means he didn't tap into the divine power that he possessed to overcome. He could have, but that would defeat the whole purpose for which he came, which was to live truly as a second Adam, a true man, in all ways as we are yet without sin, and overcome to be our perfect substitute sacrifice and to be our perfect high priest. And Jesus did overcome 
without relying on his divine nature, in his human nature alone, by relying on power from the Holy Spirit, which he accessed through prayer. If you understand that, it leads to a huge conclusion. The same spirit that enabled Jesus to overcome has been given to us. We have the same spirit. Even though he was God, Jesus faced his temptation per his human nature alone, relying on the power of the spirit. And for that reason, he can serve as our true example. He overcame by relying on the spirit through prayer. So what does that mean for us? It means we too are to overcome by relying on the power of the spirit, which we access through prayer. That's our only hope. Hebrews 4.15 says this. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Jesus knows, really, what you are going through in your trials. And he stands ready to give you strength to endure. But will you draw near in prayer? Will you depend on the Spirit? All of this is basically just another way of saying Galatians 5.16. If you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Isn't that our problem? How do we overcome? If you walk by the Spirit, you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. That's the ticket. Walk by the Spirit and you'll overcome. What does that look like? How do you do that? Well, by means of the Word of God and prayer. Isn't that how Jesus overcame his two major temptations? By the Word and prayer. The Word and prayer are the two channels through which the Spirit brings God's power to bear in our lives. Apart from these, we quench the Spirit and we're left only with the power of our flesh. That's going to run out real fast. And so like Colossians 3.16 says, let the mind of Christ richly dwell within you. Let God's word and God's will be filling, saturating your mind all the time. That's how you defeat temptation like Jesus did the first time. In addition, pray. Cry out to your Father. Did you notice how here in Romans 8, we are given the privilege of calling God our Abba Father. That's what Jesus prayed in the garden. And to Jews, this was irreverent. No one has the right to access God so intimately. You're not, God's not your father. But through Jesus, God becomes our father, our, our dad. And recognize he loves you. He proved it by sending his son to die for you. So what is stopping you from calling on him in your hour of testing? He wants to hear you and he's pleased to deliver you strength to endure when you pray. When you pray. We need that strength because we too will suffer. Romans 8.17, which we just read, says, We are fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with him. We too will bear crosses. Trials and tribulations will come our way, threatening to derail our faith. But through the word and through prayer, the Spirit of God will grant you the power you need to withstand those waves. So how do you overcome? First, you have to understand the, the weakness of your own flesh. Secondly, learn to truly seek God's Spirit for strength through the word and through prayer. Step number three, Keep watch for temptation. Keep watch for temptation. As Jesus told the disciples, they needed to watch and pray. A constant spiritual and mental alertness is needed if you're going to identify and withstand those waves that are coming. So watch for temptation. That's a function of prayer because prayer engages the mind. Prayer tunes our minds to spiritual things. Listen to some verses which connect together watchfulness and prayer. Colossians 4.2 says, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Ephesians 6.18 says, with all prayer and petition 
Pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And finally, 1 Peter 5.8, Peter says, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Where do you think Peter learned that lesson? He learned it starting in the garden. He fell to Satan's temptation that night, but he, he was strengthened. He, he learned his lesson, and he's strengthening us. He says, be on the alert. Stay tuned to the invisible spiritual world around you at all times. The world lives totally oblivious to the reality of God, to the reality of sin. But we must not. You have to see the world through your spiritual goggles. That will enable you to recognize special times of testing and temptation. For example, the world thinks nothing of that scantily clad billboard ad. But you have to see that. that that's a test. That's a temptation. There's a spiritual temptation there. The world thinks nothing of being home alone with your computer or having alcohol in the home or watching that R-rated movie, or hanging out that certain crowd. They think nothing. You have to see such situations as potential tests, temptations. Too many Christians enter danger zones totally unaware. They're totally oblivious. You're walking into a wave. They're spiritually sleeping. And so it's no wonder that they, like the disciples, they succumb to the weakness of their own flesh. You have to wake up. You have to see a spiritual battlefield 24-7. Otherwise, you'll just get knocked down time and time again. Know what you're walking into and pray. Keep watch for temptation, number three. Keep watch for temptation. Then when you find temptation, number four, deny self and obey God. Deny self and obey God. You have to know, as you understand the weakness of your flesh, you have to realize part of you wants to sin. Do you understand that? Your old self, your flesh, would love nothing more than to sin. That's inside of you. But as you now walk by the Spirit, you have to now deny yourself. You can't let yourself be controlled by your lusts and desires. Like Jesus said, deny yourself as you follow him. Don't listen to yourself. Talk to yourself. In America, we're trained to listen to the self, to love the self no matter what. As long as you're being true to self, you're doing well, right? But it's actually yourself with its sinful desires. That's the problem. We have long ago lost the practice of self-denial. That's an ancient, you know, puritanical thing. But if you don't rediscover self-denial, you're a goner. Will you, as a disciple, deny yourself to follow Jesus? Will you submit your will to God's will and say, your will be done, like Jesus prayed? That, that's the mark of a real disciple. Now, all this talk of self-denial and self-discipline might, might catch you off guard. Maybe you are one of those who think, you know, isn't the Christian life all about letting go and letting God? Right? Wrong. Wrong. Yes, we, we trust God to work. We rely on his power. We can't do anything without his power. But God himself tells us to get to work. He tells us to fight to obey him. Isn't that what Jesus did in the garden? Remember last week we spent so much time in Philippians 2, which tells us how Jesus learned obedience to the point of death, even death on the cross. He, he obeyed the Father. He denied his human will, which sought to preserve self, and he obeyed the Father's will, even if that meant death on a cross. That's called true obedience. And what do you think God expects from us? The very next verse after that in Philippians 2 says this. Philippians 2, 12. Right after that, Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See what this verse is saying? God supplies the power. But without his power, we can't do anything. We need his power. But he's given you the power. Now what does he tell you to do? Obey 
by working out your salvation. Work it out. It doesn't say work for your salvation, but work out your salvation that you already possess. We know salvation comes by God's free gift. But if you're truly alive now in Christ, then it's saying live like it. Fight. Struggle. Wrestle with your old self and overcome. Get your head in the fight. Deny yourself and pursue obedience, even if it costs you something. It will cost you. Obedience eventually will cost you something. But if you're a disciple and you say, like the disciples claimed, oh, we're going we're gonna to follow you. This is what it really looks like to follow. So are you really a follower? Deny yourself and obey God. And then finally, we'll finish here. Number five, endure by looking to Jesus. Number five, endure by looking to Jesus. We are going to suffer in this life, especially as believers. Jesus didn't escape it, neither will we. We are going to be tested by God and tempted by our flesh and the evil one. But all of this fits into God's design. How so? God purposes in our trials to perfect us and glorify his name. This is why he has left us with the presence of sin through our trials. He purposes to perfect us and glorify his name. You know, whenever difficult times come, we're all too quick to pray and just beg God to take it away. The trial comes, you say, Lord, just take the suffering away. Take the cross away. And there's nothing wrong with praying that. Yeah, go ahead and pray that. I do. We, we should. Like Philippians 4 says, let your request be made known to God. Go ahead and pray like Paul did, that the thorn in your flesh would be removed. Pray it. But just understand, God often says no to that prayer. And understand why he says no to that prayer. Why did God say no to Paul when Paul prayed? 2 Corinthians 12.9 says, God's response to Paul's prayer to remove the thorn in his flesh God responded and said, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. And so Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You see, God, he extracts glory from us as we, in our weakness, depend on him for strength. This is how he perfects us in this life before the next. What pleases God? Faith. What grows faith? Trials. This is why God has designed for us to share in the sufferings of Christ. But don't lose heart. Because if you're in Christ, we will also share in his exaltation. The cross comes before the crown, but there is a crown coming to those who endure. And so, lastly, you have to endure. You have to endure. Trust God to do his part. Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will perfect it. God's sovereignty, that's our assurance. He, he will finish what he started, and that's you. But God himself still tells us to do our part. And just take that at face value. What's our part? Run the race of faith with endurance. Finish the course. How do we do that? Well, these five steps this morning give you a, a starting point, an outline to start with. But ultimately, in all things, look to Christ. You have to run always. Just look into Christ. Hebrews 12, you know it, 1 and 2. It says, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin, which so easily entangles us. It does. Lay it aside. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You've got a race. There it is. It says, verse 2, how do we do that? By fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's what it means to follow Jesus. He started our faith. He will finish it. But you you just keep running. It's your job. You just keep running. Continually fight. Shed the sin. That just so, it so easily entangles us. It does. We feel that. Our flesh is weak. 
to walk by the Spirit, shed the sin, and keep running. Where we want to go, Jesus already went. He's been there first. He went there. And so now we must follow. Suffering might come before glory. In fact, it will. But like Romans 8 says, the sufferings of this present time, they're not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to follow. And if you endure, as you endure, you can know that nothing will separate you from the love of God in Christ. So what are we to do? Just press on. Run with endurance the race that is set before you by fixing your eyes on Jesus. That is how we will overcome. Let's pray. Well, our God, we have to thank you for this, this special passage in Scripture, this Garden of Gethsemane. So much we learned about our Savior, the divine Son of Man who came, took on human flesh, and truly lived as a man. And he suffered. He was tried. He was tempted in all ways as we are. Yet, Lord, you are perfect Savior. You overcame. You relied on the power of, of the Spirit. And you faced an unspeakable trial for us. And this is love that you laid down your life for us. And we thank you for that love. And Lord, now we just we pray, we pray for your strength to endure. By our faith in you, you've, you've made us new. You've given us desire for the things of God, for the way of God. But, but we have to confess we're, we're weak. Sin, it, it so easily entangles us still. Lord, would you give us your strength? Spirit, would you fill us with the power we need to to walk, to run this race? We, we can't finish this course by ourselves. But Lord, we can already glory in you because you've already promised, yes, yes, you will give us strength. Our every trial and temptation will not flee. We will, we will suffer. We will share in the sufferings of Christ. But as we endure, we will share in his glory as well. So strengthen us, Lord. May we leave here resolved and renewed in our walk, in our race. May we overcome, walk by the Spirit, keep watch and pray all the time, seeking you for what we need. And in the end, just fix our eyes upon Jesus, the one who went first, our Lord, our Savior. We glorify you, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.